Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Law of Code. Today's guest is Carol Van Cleef. Carol is an internationally recognized authority and pioneer in legal issues involving cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. As chair of Bradley's blockchain and digital assets practice, Carol leads the firm's virtual currencies and blockchain work to help clients navigate the complex, dynamic, and rapidly evolving issues in these areas. Carol is also an anti-money laundering specialist and has created compliance training programs for state regulators, bank executives, and beyond. In this conversation, we will cover regulation, tornado cash, debanking, and much more. Carol, welcome to the Law of Code podcast, and thank you so much for joining me. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for inviting me. You've really established quite, quite a series here with your podcast, and I'm honored to join you today. Well, thank you. And all credit goes to the guests, people like you who are willing to take the time to, to speak with me and talk a bit about what I think we all believe is such an exciting area, an important area that is the overlap between blockchain technology and the legal world. So I thought we could start a bit with, uh, we could start with your Genesis block. But I know your Genesis block goes a little bit further in the past than some, and it doesn't start with Bitcoin. Could you describe a bit of when you were first introduced to cryptography and the idea of digital assets having value? Well, I think I was probably introduced to cryptography as a kid with games of decoding. I really never thought about my first introduction to cryptography, but I definitely by the mid to late 90s started to get a much better sense of where the world was going. And I think I probably approached this issue from a different perspective than a lot of your guests may in that I grew up through the banking side, through payments and seeing the power that, seeing where we were with the payment systems as we know them, with banking systems generally, and having a sense that they needed to go further than they were whether you're starting back when the banks first really started using ACH payments. They'd used wire transfers for many years. But as we progressed over the years into different forms of payments and moving into the area of prepaid, for example, I was one of the first lawyers working in the prepaid space back in the early to mid-2000s. And I always felt that that was just an intermediary stage, that it was taking us from a place where we were using cash to where we would be conducting all of our transactions in some sort of an electronic form. So, so the history is, is long and, and to say that there was a defining moment, I will say this, something to keep in mind is that uh, in, in the early 80s in law school, and there I'm dating myself, I, I wrote a paper on electronic money. So this concept of electronic money has been 
on the on my forefront for many, many years. Going back a little bit earlier than that, I had the privilege while I was in high school to attend a National Science Foundation summer program in math. And I was got my first introduction into the world of computers and programming in particular. So while I don't consider myself to be a coder today, I've been told not to say that I'm not a technologist, but I have had some very basic experience back in those old days with Fortran and with cards and very clumsy processes of at least sort of understanding how you build the code. And in addition, I've lived for many years with my husband, who was one of the early programmers in the computer field. So I, I have a pretty good idea of how, how that process, how one approaches that process of thought, which I think probably has, has prepared me better for this arena. The last piece I'll say is that I've always been told by my husband in particular that I expect way too much of the technology. And so going back to going back to my paper on electronic money in the early 80s, we're almost 40 years later now, and we're still not totally there. We're much further along than we ever were, but we're not totally there. If you think back to your paper that you wrote in the 80s while you were in law school about electronic money, is there anything that stands out to you as something that came true, something that you projected in the future? Or could you maybe walk us through what the paper was about and how you approached the idea of electronic money? I will confess that my concept of electronic money was very, probably infantile at the time. Each transactions were just starting to really come into being, and it really focused on the use of ACA. But when you start to think about how that freed us <laughs> in a lot of ways from some of the traditional shackles that we had around us with the payment systems, that was a major step forward. But again, I, I think I go back to a book that I read probably in high school. I, and if I recall, it was by Edward Bellamy. And it was this concept of, I think it was sort of anticipating the world of prepaid at the very least. And that thought had always stuck with me. And I just never saw the reasoning for such clumsy systems that we had in the banking arena. It's funny that you say that when I was in law school, I wrote a paper on the cross-border payments and many other aspects relating to blockchain technology and the modern banking system. So I'm sure in 40 years, I'll be on a podcast saying, oh, I'm dating myself, but back into the 2020s, I, I wrote about blockchain technology. So that's interesting to hear from your perspective there. When you think about crypto and when crypto first arrived on your radar, did you have initial thoughts on the potential here? Did it instantly click that this could be that form of electronic money that you had previously written about? Well, again, I come at this from a slightly different perspective than most because in 2008, I was called upon to represent on the backside of criminal prosecution, the founders of eGold, E-G-O-L-D, which was a gold-backed digital currency system that ran had head first into the federal government. And upon sentencing, where the judge said the system, which was a gold-backed digital currency that was 100% backed by gold, was not illegal. The system itself was not illegal. That while the, the founders had pled guilty to certain federal crimes, she said, I don't believe you have criminal. She then went on to say that what they did was they created something that was, was so good that the criminals really liked it and they should have pulled back and put controls around it to prevent criminal abuse. And then finally, she said, you had bad lawyers. 
and, and, and then gave them money back and told them to follow the terms of their plea agreement and go get regulated appropriately. It was with that money I got hired. And that started me down the rabbit hole of digital currencies, though they would say it's currency in a digitized form as opposed to a digital currency. I, I got schooled. I got a very heavy duty course in money in working with the founders and Doug Jackson, in particular, Dr. Jackson. Um, that that really prepared me in a lot of ways. Many of the issues that they ran had problems in dealing with the, the federal government on are concepts today that we just, we look at and work with as if they're just in the normal course of business. But when they try to explain a essentially a digital currency exchange or a virtual currency exchange to the government back then, this was an issue that went totally over their head. There are many issues that came up in that case which laid a lot of the foundation for the conversations we're having today. Having said that, I then engaged with them and in our process of working to bring a new system forward based on the predicates of the of the old system, I kept seeing this word coin appear. <laughs> what, seven letters? Small, small, not capital, but small b, Bitcoin. And I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> Who's behind this? And my real concern was we were spending a great deal of time working to bring forward a system that would be compliant in accordance with what the government had laid out for this new, the government said we need rules for this new wild, wild west of, of digital currencies of international money remittance. And I was scared to death that the people who were behind Bitcoin we're going to mess everything up for us. Whether they would they, they would do something in a certain way and potentially blow up the the criminal abuse issues, many different kinds of things that could happen along the way. And I so I started watching Bitcoin, watching the press about this. And so this is 2009, 2010 timeframe. And by 11, I was like, I've got to get into this more. And by 2012, I was actually doing some representation of, of, of some players in the crypto space. And I will tell you, and I think that the, Dr. Jackson would confirm this, that they were not very happy. My clients on the Eagle side were not happy that I was getting into the mix with this Bitcoin, in part because they had looked at, they read the Satoshi white paper. They had come to the conclusion that the math was very messy and they felt that this was never going to be a solution, a real solution for a true digital currency. And I have to admit, that as time has unfolded, we're now 10 years past my full engagement in this space and almost 15 years past my engagement in the world of, of fully in the world of digital currencies or virtual currencies, that I have to admit that we're still not there with a truly, truly digital or virtual currency that, that is ubiquitous in use. Thank you for that answer, Carol. And it's so interesting to hear that experience that you had. And I can imagine coming from the perspective of eGold, you had already experienced a bit of what the potential was in this space, but also the potential downsides and the risks that came with it. When you think back and how look at how the space has developed, and you mentioned we still haven't reached that point where we really use these digital assets and they haven't reached ubiquity. What do you think is blocking that? If you had to think of one or two factors that really are stopping us from hitting that point, what comes to mind? 
oh, one or two or three or 10 or 20 factors? <laughs> it's an interesting question in the way that you pose it, because and I was in a conversation last night on this point, is that one of the issues that we've got to deal with now, and again, this is uh, 10, 12, 14 years into the, the great experiment, is that the conversations become very muddled. And, and that the muddling of that conversation is, in fact, hindering in a lot of ways the, I think, accelerating the, the, the adoption of, of the concept of digital assets. And I think that's the, the starting point one is to sort out what we're talking about when we talk about digital assets. And one of the things I've come to do is really tr when I start a conversation is to say, okay, we've got this term digital asset, but what does it mean? And I say, let's pull out a bunch of buckets and I'm going to place different kinds of digital assets into different buckets because then we can have a more meaningful conversation about the assets, the digital assets in each one of those buckets. Because if you don't do that, then you start talking about, you talk about Bitcoin in the same, in the same breath that you talk about an ERC-20 token versus an ERC-721 token, which has just taken us from native currencies to different types of tokens that we saw in their heyday in particular, but still are very popular in the ICO world. And then we move to NFTs just in that course of that brief conversation. But where do we put stable coins? So I would have my bucket for the native currencies, the Bitcoin, the Ethereum, et cetera, I that are tied to that the, the, the blockchain to to are native to a particular protocol. Then you've got what I would say is, are the ERC-20 tokens, which can really be a lot of different things. And you really need to break that bucket down, but let's just get them there to start. I would certainly have my bucket for NFTs. And again, our bucket for NFTs is getting to be a pretty big bucket and we're gonna have to break that into smaller buckets, but we have stable coins. And stable coins is in some ways maybe the most important bucket that we have towards adoption of this technology. And then we've got central bank digital currencies, which will be maybe an inevitable follow on. And, and then DeFi. And then DeFi right now, in my mind, is it really defies definition in many ways. There are so many different ways that we can define what DeFi really is. I think we're seeing some, we've seen some predominant use cases, but, but bottom line is, Let's separate out before we have this conversation and say, what are we really talking about in the conversation? So if we're talking about my initial entree into this, which was in the form of currency, how do you use it for transactional purposes and so on? That's in a lot of ways, it's the first bucket and maybe the stablecoin bucket and maybe eventually the CBDC bucket. But each one of those buckets has their own set of issues around them. Thank you, Carol. And I, I completely agree. And Definitions in this space are so important, particularly in light of what's happened with the Uki DAO and the idea of a DAO in general being used and defined. And you you explicitly mentioned DeFi. Does do you have a definition for DeFi? What encapsulates DeFi to you? So I guess maybe I'm too much of a I won't say traditionalist, but certainly a literalist. And DeFi is decentralized finance. And what does that mean? It means taking the intermediary out of financial services. 
And, but then what is financial services? And again, because of my background, a banking regulatory lawyer first, but spanning the, the, the spectrum of financial services that includes deposit taking, includes lending and includes securities related activities, which again can be fairly broad. Insurance, another major area. And I would say those are sort of the big classes in part that they track with the type of different kinds of assets that we've developed over time in, in those areas, plus regulatory structures. So it really then, if you're talking DeFi, let's be specific about what aspect of decentralized finance are we talking about? And there's exciting things that are going on in every one of those areas. Some of them may be more exciting or, or maybe too exciting if you take a, a Celsius situation, which when people talk about securities, if you call it a security or if it, if it looks like it quacks like whatever, a duck, it's a duck. Well, in this case, what Celsius is doing, a lot of that was just plain lending activity with without regard to anything else that was going on. And they were doing deposit taking, which really in a lot of ways put them into the category of being a bank. But, but back to your question about what decentralized finance is, that I would say, again, I I would want to sort out that bucket into at least those four those four smaller buckets before we start having a more fulsome conversation. It's such an important point and the idea of talking past each other or being completely misaligned on the definition of an aspect of the crypto space is a huge problem and then it can't lead to progressive conversations, particularly when it comes to regulation. And you assisted in the Uniform Law Commission's efforts to draft a legal framework for virtual currencies and you've been involved in other numerous regulatory efforts. So for those listening who maybe have been involved in similar efforts or will be in the future, what are some things you've learned in reaching that consensus and speaking with regulators and breaking that barrier when it comes to educating and creating framework for moving these digital assets forward? Well, I should add a full disclosure, say my experience with the Uniform Law Commission dates back to the 2015 or probably 16, 17 and 18 time period. So that's almost ancient history at this point. It is instructive, though, in terms of the way these processes happen. And I think the Uniform Law Commission now, with some of their efforts that are underway, are addressing some of the some of the issues that that existed back in those days, one of which was there was very little practical experience that was at the table. So you had a number of academics, you had people who had been involved with the Uniform Law Commission process in other capacities, some of them in writing some of the payments code, the money transmitter code years before, but not necessarily with a good concept of the how this technology what was going on with the technology and how that was different and how it impacted issues. And sometimes I was the only person in the room who had dealt with the private sector side. Coindesk, or I'm sorry, Coin Center often had a representative in the room, which brought some real practical experience to the table. But that was a big piece that was missing. And I think that the level of adoption of that code, which I think was finally approved in 2018, has been very, very low, which I think reflects the fact that it was really, I hate to say it, dead on arrival, but it it did not really reflect what it needed to. It was too modeled on traditional money transmitter 
laws. So to your broader question, which is very important, and one that I've had actually just a number of discussions with people in, in recent weeks, is that as going back, barring on my experience as banking regulatory lawyer, I approached issues. I worked with a lot of banks over the years in helping them bring new products to market. Now, they were bringing new products to market in a regulated environment so that what we always did is we looked for precedent. We looked for something that had been done in the past and see how we could relate this new development to what had been done in the past. And that was always the best way towards adoption or approval. Because if we couldn't do that, then we were trying to come to the table with something brand new. And when you say brand new, nothing like this has ever been there before, you're going to bring the regulatory process to a halt. And we've seen that again and again and again. That takes us into the regulatory process itself. And right now, I think we're seeing particular strains in that area, in part because as soon as a regulator gets much experience in this area, they're ending up jumping to the other side. And people, people may call that the revolving door, in my view, that it's a very necessary step for the maturation of of the the the, the crypto ecosphere because they need they need to be able to tap into the resources of the experience of these regulators and understand more how these processes work because that going back to sort of the early days is that when you walk I walk around conferences and just hear people say no laws apply to us, no laws apply to us. And here, obviously, I had my experiences with the Eagle situation. I'm like, no, you're, you're wrong. <laughs> and you're going to go to jail and you're, this is going to happen to you and this is going to happen to you. And those things did happen over time. So, so it, bottom line it, is, bottom line is that, that we don't live in a world where there's not precedent. And we need to use that precedent to our advantage, not look at it as being a disadvantage. I love that approach and using what's already been successful and leveraging that to incorporate it into the future and to advocacy efforts in what is a new space is so important. And it, it really, I think, starts with understanding and knowing the technology and understanding what it's used for and how it works. So that way you can knowledgeably explain it to people. And one thing that everyone I've spoken to when I told them I was interviewing Carol Van Cleef, they said, you have to ask her about tornado cash. I can tell you what my perspectives are in terms of the regulatory action that was taken and, and some of the pieces that I put together, because I remember that morning waking up and, and seeing that this action had happened. And first thing I did was I read the press release. I read the, the Treasury Department press release, which was very insightful because in there, and it was a comment that was being missed by everyone, is a reference to the fact that Tornado Cash essentially had promised that they would take care of the money laundering in the system. And they promised that they would do so, and they hadn't delivered on that promise. And then the Treasury Department was acting with the third major hack in a matter of, of a few weeks, including one that was only six days before the press release came out. So there's a lot of things that we can learn from that situation. One is that clearly they've been thinking for a while how to deal with the issues that were on the table. And the primary issue they were dealing with 
was the fact that that the North Korean government was laundering a number of funds through tornado cash and that that the, that our government was I'm sorry our government being the US government was very focused on trying to stem the bleeding that was happening from the hacks from the ransomware everything that was happening the tornado cash was a key element in facilitating the the flow of those illegal funds so so you could tell that they were they were they were they had put a lot of thought into what they did so that's that's one it wasn't without thought two is that they did seize the right moment when they could say okay look we've just had these three things including the one six days ago rarely do you see the government act that quickly after an event <laughs> and that's why i say it's particularly telling in terms of how they had lined things up so that's point one. Point two is the fact that they focused on tornado cash and they pointed to the fact that there had been promises to take care of the money laundering. So the first thing I did when I read that is I went to Twitter and I went to the website and there is a website for tornado cash. And I went to Twitter and there's a web, there's a Twitter account. And it was clear that somebody was monitoring the Twitter account because there were regular Twitters that were tweets that were going out from the account. And one of them goes back, went back to April timeframe when Tornado Cash on tweet announced uh, on Twitter announced the fact that it was that it was taking steps to to address money laundering by bringing in a blockchain analytics tool, integrating it into the into the code. So what that tells you right there is that it's not truly decentralized. It's not all code, that there are people that are behind this and that this action was primarily focused on those people. And if you can get after the actors and those who are writing the code with the, with the knowledge that that code is being used in a certain way, and certainly the fact that they took actions to try to cut off the money laundering, was certainly indicative of the fact that they knew money laundering was happening. To play devil's advocate here, and, and you're a lawyer, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, could you not analogize this to saying, well, Microsoft developers created Excel, and we've seen that these terrorists or money launderers use Excel to move their finances or to track their, the money that they have around the world? The tornado or the Microsoft developers, they should be held responsible for this. Do, where does that analogy miss when it comes to tornado cash? I think we're naive in many ways when we look at all of the different forms of communication and technology that's evolved over the years and think that there's not some level of responsibility that has been, I want to say ingrained, but that's not the right word in those who are administering those systems. So I'm going to go at this from a slightly different fashion, a different way and say that our system of laws in the United States are based on saying no U.S. person shall, no U.S. person shall be involved in a violation of the sanctions. No U.S. person shall be involved in money laundering, aiding and abetting, or being willfully blind to it. So then the question becomes, what happens if you create something and that something is used for money laundering? How do you protect yourself from being viewed as actually facilitating it, whether, you, whether you're aiding and abetting or just plain being willfully blind to it? So that's led over the years to the creation of certain, for lack of, again, a better word, protocols that, that 
companies use, companies, firms, whatever. And and those protocols are really compliance programs as we've we've evolved it in our our vernacular. If you look at the banking industry, and this is this is best case study for this, is that the banks, no matter how good their systems are, how many controls they put into place, how many tools that they use, how much they've invested in technology, et cetera, et cetera, they're still going to get through. And so the question is, how can they prove that they weren't opening that door for somebody to get through? And that's where they've come up with a whole system of having policies and procedures in place, having controls, having reporting, having different pieces of the puzzle so that they can say, hey, we did our best. We, we, we made reasonable efforts to make sure we weren't being abused by criminals. So take that into the world of an Amazon, a Google, whether it's a Microsoft product or whatever. And depending upon how these things are being deployed, if it's just software that's being sold and you sell it and it's gone and that's it, if, if a criminal picks it up, the, the question that a company in that type of circumstance would look at is who, who's buying it? How are they buying it? And can we be culpable for selling software that's being used by criminals? And they'll look at that carefully and make some determinations on how to address that. If you look at Amazon, for example, Amazon in its earlier days was having significant problems. It created this great marketplace for sale, but they had counterfeit goods going across it. They had all sorts of types of scams going across it. And over time, they put controls in place to cut down that activity. And so we've seen that repeated again and again, and we are totally naive if we don't think that that's been happening. Now, I think we're also totally naive living in society, being a part of society to say that we don't have some responsibility for that. And I'll bring that full circle. I was at the uh, at the Fordham Law School Blockchain Symposium this past week and uh, kudos to Donna Riddell for, for her and Joyce and their efforts in putting that together. And they had a great audience, probably, I don't know, 250, 300 people in the room. And I was listening to some of the DeFi conversation and I finally raised my hand. I've been good for the whole conference, but I finally raised my hand and I said, we're here at a law school. What's ingrained in law school education is ethics, legal ethics. That, that we, we, we have these conversations all the time when we go to sit before the bar and so on, but we have to make certain certain representations. And then we have a whole code of ethics to govern our behavior. Where, as lawyers in particular, do we have a responsibility in this space in terms of advising clients and so on? And and I would say I was I, I think the answers that came back were rather predictable to say, well, you can always your client can present themselves and 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 if you don't agree with what they're they're doing, you can resign. It was interesting the response that I got people who came back to talk to me and and they said, You didn't really get a very good answer, did you? But the same concept plays over into the coding world. And at what point are coders responsible for their actions? And and I'll start with the Eagle case and say that in the Eagle case, the judge held them responsible for pulling back the system that they had created and putting controls around it to prevent criminal abuse of it. Fast forward to Liberty Reserve in 2013, it was a case prosecuted by the by Department of Justice in the U.S. as well as FinCEN, and there were a number of other countries who joined in that case in the, in the prosecution. And 
what they did at the end of the day is not only did they hold the the founders of Liberty Reserve, but they also indicted the CTO, Chief Technology Officer, and I think the the manager of the information information technology systems, IMS, whatever they called the called him. And these got both of those guys went to jail, ultimately. And what the judge said was, or what the Department of Justice said is that they that they had a they were they were responsible for creating code that they knew was going to be used by criminals. So I, again, thinking about what your role is, is in society is what role do we owe to society to making sure that our creations are in fact for the betterment of society and is freedom censor, censorship censorless censorship less society is that what does that really mean in this context? Great points. And it's a difficult area when you think of programmers creating systems that will be deployed and could be forked, could be edited, could be used by anyone in the world. And to bear that responsibility and to think ahead of time, how will this be used? It puts an interesting perspective on the idea of even free speech and publishing code. And what I find most interesting with that, too, is the idea that someone who's a criminal is, can be very subjective and depends really on where they live. Marijuana is a good example with Biden's recent announcement, where some countries you could have freely had it and then others you would go to jail. And I'm sure there's, there's analogies that can be used in the context of digital assets and, and money transmission. So it will be interesting going forward to see how firewalls, I think, might play a big role on particular websites being available in countries around the world. Because with something like Tornado Cash, you could fork the code and start your own similar entity with new wallets and everything. And now all of a sudden, I don't know, would those sanctions even apply? Well, I would say from the time that I started in emerging alternative payment systems, which goes back to the mid 90s, I've, I've always said and had slides included in my, my presentation decks that we're, we're in an arms race. It's a constant arms race. So for, and, and so what's going on in the crypto world is really no different than what we've been experiencing for the last 15 or 20 years before that, that as, as Governments find a way to crack the code, the tornado cash being sort of the latest, I won't say innovation, I'm not sure that was particularly innovative, but as, as we find ways, whether it's blockchain analytics companies or other tools that are being developed, that the criminal element is out there and they're going to continue to evolve as well and looking for alternative. They're, they're looking for systems. They need to move their money. They need to move their value. They need to accomplish the things that they want to. And so it's just an ongoing process. I think the question is, what do we do as a society in terms of uh, I, some of these questions are way beyond anything we can deal with and, and can be very philosophical here. But I will do a sort of a shout out to the University of Virginia that they their engineering program, they have a basic starter class where they do talk about ethics, about doing good with your programming. So do we need to be doing more of that in our engineering schools, in our CS programs? It is a big responsibility, especially when now you can have some form of digital money or value that's being transmitted beyond just purely information like we had previously seen until the idea of Bitcoin or, or crypto assets or digital assets really came around. When you think of decentralization, and I think that's something that 
we're beginning to take for granted in the space why we want decentralization. And people point to examples of meltdowns from centralized exchanges and loss of funds and, and things like that. But when you think of decentralization, Carol, do you think that is a net positive? And how do you think about that going forward in, in terms of the benefits that decentralization offers, given your experience in the payments and, and financial system? I, that's such a It's a big question. question. It's a big question. <laughs> Again, starting with, I, I was sort of there at not totally at the beginning when the banking industry really started to in include technology of the form that we know with, with big, big mainframe computers and so on. Was that the right kind of, of solution? I mean, I think what's so exciting about the crypto space is that, and, and sort of my observation looking at that 40 year period of time is that we have the capability in from a technology standpoint to put tools into the hands of almost anyone to develop almost anything. And the code around Bitcoin, around the cryptocurrencies generally have really made, have, have, have provided uh, a mechanism that uh, it frees the imagination and makes almost anyone able to play in a system that if you go back 40 years ago, you had to have a mainframe computer that was sitting on Park Avenue or wherever, down on Wall Street in, in, in New York City. And you had to have very specialized people who had capabilities to use that and had access to that. That we don't have those barriers anymore. So is that allowing us to create more things more rapidly? In a lot of ways, is sort of like when when the the when AT and T was broken up. That what happened to our telecommunications? And some people will say it was a total. It's been a total disaster since then. But look at how we're communicating today because we freed up that 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 creativity. So I I think decentralization is important. I also think that points of failure, especially in the world we live in, we we need to avoid those points of failure as much as possible and redundancy is is an important element of that. So I I, I there are a lot of pieces that I I am very supportive of. At the same time, you have to wonder how much people really want decentralization. Because if you go back to some of the some of the conversations we've seen just in the past year or so, where those who have substantial holdings of crypto have become targets in their homes because the thieves are after that that there's their whatever it is device where they may hold their crypto that they their physical being has been put at risk so why do we have banks or trusted places to hold assets and so on is so that we don't endanger ourselves what happens if our house burns down what a lot of ifs that can happen and so that's why we have some of these these institutions as they exist so are, are we, do we really want to undermine them and make them all go away? And if you look at what's happening in custody, I mean, I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting development is that a lot of time and attention is being put into the area of custodying crypto assets. Well, in my mind, that's a step back towards centralization, you know, because you're, how many, how many entities are going to ultimately be deemed appropriate to be able to custody assets? 
And then I think there's one other piece, and I'm not on any kind of soapbox, so I hope people understand that. But I have before a number of crypto audiences recently said, you really need to listen to what somebody like Elizabeth Warren's talking about and the concerns about consumerism, because she spent her entire career creating laws to help consumers under the basis that not everyone can help themselves. And so the decentralization undermines those systems of laws because they've been created for a centralized system. So what I think is coming upon us in this space is that we be thinking about, we need to be thinking about how we can extend protections to people. And I, I, I know Bruce Fenton fairly well, and I know where Bruce comes from in that he, he believes that people should be able to make their own decisions and should be the own, own their own fate. But there's so many people that are just simply not capable of doing so. So I think, again, that's another tension that we need to deal with. And when you think of the idea of people owning their own fate, it does, the the thing that popped to my mind is the, the roaring 20s and the Great Depression that happened afterwards where you had enormous amounts of leverage, stock picking that was based on fabricated term sheets, fabricated balance statements from companies. It's a dangerous game when you you really allow things to be the Wild West and without any repercussions for bad actors. I, I think it's a dangerous area. And that's where decentralization could have benefits and, and could have drawbacks as well. My, in my opinion, the future will be a mix of both. There might be some gateways or there might be some form of centralization. But then on the back end, I think that's where decentralization will thrive. When you look at something like email and the protocols that email runs on, those you could argue are decentralized. There's no one entity that decides how email works and how it's sent. Whereas Twitter, well, you can't really build on top of Twitter because they can change something in a second. They can change the way the API works. And now you're, you're out of luck and that app you've been building won't work. Whereas something like Gmail, Outlook, etc., all these email programs can proliferate because of that. One thing when it comes to crypto that we've seen happening is this de-risking, de-banking, shadow bank, shadow unbanking. And you had tweeted, quote, every two years or so, crypto companies have faced de-risking code for regulatory pressure on banks to close risky accounts. This round is several months old, almost always correlates with Department of Justice, IRS, FinCEN, or bank regulatory actions. Unquote. Could you talk a little bit more about that tweet and what this debanking, de-risking is? Well, debanking, de-risking is nothing new. It's not something that was that came about because of crypto. It has definitely been going on since, at the very least, 9/11 and the the Patriot Act. In the wake of of the the attack at the World Trade Center, uh, we did see a massive de-risking or debanking of money transmitters because it was deemed that the money transmitters were the weak link in the financial services system and that funds were flowing to terrorist activities and so on through these systems, and they didn't have appropriate controls, at least controls that would measure up to what the banks had. So that started, we saw the first de-risking in, in, uh, in, in a really major way in sort of the 2002 timeframe. And again, sort of every, every two to three years, we'd have another wave of, of de-risking. In part, what would happen is the bank regulators 
and this is this is usually what drives it. The bank regulators will go in and do their examination of a bank, and they'll find a bank <laughs> that hasn't done everything that they should with respect to their due diligence on their clients and they're servicing a portfolio of, of money transmitters or more recently crypto businesses, then they will t- take appropriate regulatory actions against that bank. The bank will feel the pain. The regulator now knows more than they did when they went in and they start to take that in sort of an e- evangelical way to other banks and and the banks all become concerned that they've got to make sure their portfolios are scrubbed carefully of those kinds of clients. So I, we've seen this just, as I said, every couple of years and it, it may be traditional money transmitters initially and then it's morphed into different types of entities culminating in part. And I don't know how many of your listening audience is fully aware of the, in the Obama administration, I'm trying to, what was the term that they used? Operation Choke Point. Yeah. So in the, in the Obama administration, the Department of Justice really launched what was considered Operation Choke Point. And that was an outgrowth of finding the regulators and the, and the Department of Justice starting to understand what role payment processors played in facilitating a lot of the riskier types of activities that were occurring through the banking system. And that's what generated now, if you pick up a terms of use for almost any type of online service, and you'll see all these different things that you you pledge that you're not engaged in, including sale of guns and so on, that came out of Operation Choke Point. And the idea was that if they could close off the access of those companies that were engaged in activities that were causing legal problems through the payment processes that were really giving them the access to the banking system, that you could close down those operations. And and that's when de-risking really became a much more popular, <laughs> popular or well-known term. And we spent many years up until the very end of the Trump administration when the that Operation Choke Point was officially revoked. But that still doesn't stop <laughs> the fact that we're going to have de-risking happening. And we'll have another round of de-risking at some point in the next couple of years, no question. Is there anything that can be done to mitigate the effects of de-risking on crypto asset exchanges, platforms, or anyone in the space that is affected by this activity? It's, again, that's a little bit of a hard question to answer head on. The Many of the crypto exchanges have done a lot of work to put themselves in a place where they can have, they can facilitate better banking relationships. And that really, the banks, and I should say what I'm about to say is carried over into the crypto space is the banks are expected to do due diligence on their customers and understand who their customers are. So if they're providing banking services to the two crypto exchanges, they're really in a lot of ways exposing themselves to the full range of risks that the crypto exchange has. I sort of equate this to one of those things that stuck in my mind for many years in the early days of AIDS. There was the comment that when you have sex with one person, you have sex with every person that that person ever had. And that's in a lot of ways the way you think about banking, when you bank a a money transmitter, you bank a crypto exchange, or you bank another kind of a business, you really are exposing yourself to all of those customers of, of those entities. And so it's important to understand 
how how safe is the sex that's being practiced by the, the, the crypto exchanges? What are they doing to know their customers and to monitor transactional activity and so on to make sure that the bank isn't ultimately going back to what I said earlier, isn't deemed to be facilitating or aiding and abetting and money laundering. So this is a little bit more complicated than <laughs> than, than, it, than it appears on first glance, but there has been certainly significant effort over the last five, seven, eight years, nine years to put better anti-money laundering compliance programs in place, put better controls in place that the crypto exchanges. Now, when we have new businesses that come into this this area and we have businesses that don't have a full understanding of these legal and regulatory obligations that's where we tend to see the de-risking happening we also have a situation where and we're going through this right now is we're in a down cycle economically and so there are many many smaller banks in the u.s in particular that are looking to generate new sources of revenue and so where are they looking to to generate new sources of revenue? Well, the crypto space has been sort of a revenue plentiful space for a while. And so why don't we go service some of these companies? So the banks themselves get into a space that they don't understand. So it's a two-way educational process that the banks need to be better educated and need to set up the right the right controls and so on before jumping into a, into the business. And at the same time, the businesses that are going, trying to avail themselves of the banking services need to understand what kind of pressures are on the banks and be prepared to be able to address those. And I'll come full circle because the banking agencies just recently put out a directive to their examiners which was in turn a directive to the banking industry that basically a lot of people read that as putting the brakes on crypto activities. But what they said is that, that if a bank is thinking about getting into a crypto activity, undefined could be a lot of different things that they need to talk to their examiners. That's the first line of, 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 of regulation basically for the banks. And they need to talk to their examiners, let them know what they're going to do, and they need to do an appropriate analysis and then make the changes to their compliance programs as necessary to be able to address the kinds of risk that the bank is going to face. It's interesting hearing it from the bank's perspective and all the liability being ported onto them, and that puts them in a very difficult spot. And so this de-risking makes a lot more sense when you frame it like that. And I hope that can be mitigated in the future and there can be things to be done. And it does sound like crypto companies in particular can take steps thinking from the bank's perspective and the examiner's perspective what would be needed here and then take proactive steps to address those. In terms of the crypto space and NFTs, DAOs, there's a proliferation of opportunity and collaboration in the space. Are there any particular projects or areas that you are personally excited for, keeping an eye on, or hope 
will exist in the I'm glad you asked. <laughs> I have I have several pet projects of my own. We have one that's still sort of in stealth, which is I won't say just for fun, but we we have set up a website called KYNFT, Know Your NFT, which is really intended to be a consumer rating platform for different providers within the, the crypto space. This is still very much in beta. We're working out a lot of kinks, but it's something that we feel is, is a necessary infrastructure play. We're actually working on some bigger initiatives in the NFT space around the marketplaces, trying to address the, the coming pressures with respect to regulation in that area, looking both at some tools that'll be helpful in addressing those pressures as well as potentially developing some standards to help guide their efforts, much along what we've just been talking about for the banks, that the more that we have in place is certainly of like around standards and so on will help facilitate the, the, the acceptance in the banking industry, acceptance with banking regulators, with other regulators and so on. So that's that's probably what I live and breathe the most these days. But I'll also make note of, of, of a couple of other items. And one of which is that, as you may know, I've spent a number of years involved with the Cambridge International Symposium on Economic Crimes and have worked to incorporate within that symposium, which is a seven-day program, a crypto track. And so we just completed last month a three-day crypto summit within the symposium. And we're looking to make that a, a much broader initiative in helping the, the crypto space, digital assets, whatever you want to call it, in, in working through a lot of these issues around anti-money laundering and exposure to, to financial crimes. Again, this is a, an important segue into, into that de-risking situation. That is exciting, Carol. I'm so happy to hear about those projects, and I will link them all in the show notes if people want to check those out, know your NFT, and more about the economic forum and, and crimes. They're both very interesting. How do you juggle everything? How do you think about time management given your legal career, anti-money laundering career, entrepreneurial career? What, what's your secret? I, I'm not sure that there, <laughs> there is any secret. What I say is the best lawyer to be hired is one that probably went to night school, that had a full-time job well in night school, so that you never learn the difference between night and day. I also grew up in a household where my father was a, a, a Methodist minister. So we were I, I was accustomed to a 24 by 7 regime from my earliest days, and that's what it seems like. And especially if you're on crypto Twitter, and crypto Twitter never sleeps. That's true. That's true. It does never sleep and crypto in general never sleeps. One thing, last questions that I, I wanted to ask you was regards to habits. And I think habits are so important in that they will push us forward in our career more, in my opinion, than even goals. You can set all the goals in the world, but if you don't have the right habits installed and you're not persistent and disciplined in going after your goals, you'll, you'll never achieve them. Are there any habits that you think about that you've either personally adopted that you're working on now that you have found particularly successful in your career? I would say that it's a lifelong pursuit to improve one's habits. It, it's it's always changing. So I've I've had the the I've been lucky enough to be able to raise two children while maintaining a, a very active career. But you're constantly evolving 
And I think that's one of the things that sort of helps situate me well in this space is that I'm used to that ongoing evolution. And when it comes to, to crypto, but as well as I do, is that it's a different challenge almost every day. <laughs> And, and we have to figure out the best way we can handle those kinds of challenges, as well as get our ha- head around what the, what the issues are. And I can't even say that I'm not a developer. I'm more reacting to what's happening in the space. And it's, as I said, every day is a, is a new challenge. And we look for new habits that we need to develop and put into place. Thank you, Carol. And and I agree, it is a lifelong journey. Of course, it's a lifelong journey, but it's a lifelong process of building habits. And if you're better today than you were yesterday and you continue that, the exponential growth will be significant. And I think it's such a great approach to take. Last question for you. And I typically ask what advice were you given early in your career that have shaped who you have become? And you, you can answer that one if you like, but I thought I'd put a bit of a twist to it in that what advice were you not given in your career that you wish you would have, or if you could go back, you would give yourself? Does anything come to mind? That's maybe the most difficult question that you've asked today. And and part of the reason is that I have defied the demographics throughout my entire career. So in the early days, being, I, I worked for a banking consulting firm, and I was often the only woman in the room. And that continued for many years. Now there are many more women in the room. But unfortunately, the, the rule book hasn't been fully written, no matter what they've tried to, to deal with the being the woman in the room. I will say that I was very fortunate early in my career to work with a wonderful person who had incredible insight into the way Washington worked, which really set a lot of the basis for my career. But I, well, I've had some very good mentors along the way. I've had to carve out a lot of the territory myself. And I think that's probably one has to realize that that one's got to do it for themselves, that the answer is not going to necessarily be there on the, at the table for you. Thank you for sharing that. And I can imagine it was a difficult journey and you've, I'm sure, always had to almost outperform the male counterparts. Like growing up in an environment like that, I, I can't imagine how difficult that was and putting yourself out there and all the success you've had in your career is inspiring, I think, to me and, and to everyone in that you've continued to persevere and you, you've had such a successful career. You're a great speaker and so knowledgeable about the space, Carol. Thank you so much for joining me. If people want to reach out to you and they want to learn more about what you're doing or help have you advise them or, or just thank you for, for everything today, what would be the best way to get in contact with you? Oh, so that going back to your habits question, (laughs) one of my problems right now is trying to figure out which of my channels that I use for that purpose. Certainly cvancleef at bradley.com is an easy place. You can tweet at me at at carol underscore vancleef. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Telegram, though I don't like Telegram as much as as other vehicles. And texting is by far the best way to ever get to me. Perfect. Okay. Well, we will. We won't put your phone number in the show notes, but we'll put the 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 Twitter account as well. And then, if they're listening and they heard the email, feel free to email Carol. Thank you so much for for spending the time speaking with me today, sharing your story, a bit more about de-risking and debanking, as well as Tornado Cash. I know I learned a lot, and I really enjoyed speaking with you. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. <laughs>